Yart, hello and welcome to the Blind Buy podcast. If you're a brand new listener to this podcast, I recommend going back to some earlier episodes, maybe even beginning at the start, okay? That's that's just a general thing we do. This podcast isn't sequential, but if you're new, definitely go back to the start or an earlier episode to get to get a, a feel for what it's about. For current listeners, you glamorous hands. I have a little public service announcement. Um, just recommending, if you're living in the 26 counties of Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, download the HSE coronavirus tracing app, okay? It's a bit of a shame that it's not available in the north of Ireland. Doesn't make sense to me. I know technically the north of Ireland is under legislation of the British Crown but it's one island we should really everyone on the island should have access to the fucking HSE app because coronavirus doesn't give a shit about the Good Friday Agreement or the six counties but anyway download the HSE coronavirus tracing app okay because I'll tell you why If you've been listening to the podcast, you know I'm speaking a lot about how we all need to move towards a collectivist mindset if we're to beat coronavirus. We can't be thinking about ourselves. We have to think, what can I do to protect other people? And then someone else is thinking that way about you. It's a cooperative thing. You're worrying about someone else and someone else is worrying about you. And together, if we do that, then you can beat coronavirus. Number one, wearing the masks. Wear a cotton face mask when you're in public. If you're not wearing yours and someone else is wearing theirs, it's not effective. You both have to be wearing a cotton face covering, whatever that is. But the coronavirus tracing app, download it onto your phone, right? Update your iOS. Um, it it kind of limits it limits iPhone users who have older iPhones, which is unfortunate. But if you have a newer iPhone or a newer Android, update your software, download the app, turn on contact tracing. What it basically does is, if everyone in the country has got the coronavirus app on their phone and it's turned on to tracing, if you happen to encounter another person who is confirmed coronavirus, you'll get a notification on your phone that you have been in contact, a close contact with a person who has the the disease. Okay? That's what this app can do. You can put in, if you're feeling unwell, you type it into the app, you type in your location, and it provides the HSE with this really detailed database based on technology. We carry our phones around with us at all times. Our data is continuously being monitored. Okay, here's a way that it, that can be used for not just selling us goods, but to keep us healthy and safe. There most likely is going to be a second wave of coronavirus. Right now it's July. Come flu season, we're going to get a second wave. We know we're going to get a second wave. We're trying to prepare for it. It becomes really easy if everyone's got a contact tracing app. That means you could be living in Sligo. There's very, very few coronavirus cases in Sligo. But let's just say it's October. 
you're in Sligo, you come in contact, you, you go to Dublin, you come in contact with a confirmed coronavirus case, you go back to Sligo, your phone beeps and says, you spent a half an hour in the company of a person with coronavirus, you must self-isolate. Your phone tells you, you stay in your gaff for two weeks, and now you have stopped infecting the entirety of Sligo with coronavirus. That's how this works. So I do recommend that. Download the app. The I don't know what it's called. It's the official HSE coronavirus tracing app. It's all over the news. But I just want to tell you it's a good idea. Okay? I have it on my phone. If you've been following me on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or whatever, um, you'll know that I've been having a whale of a time with my live streaming. I'm live streaming about five days a week now on Twitch, twitch.tv forward slash the blind by podcast. And what I'm mostly doing is playing a video game called Red Dead Redemption, exploring Red Dead Redemption, exploring the space, but also writing writing live music to the events that are happening in the game. And it is who the fuck is texting me? Um, I've been having an unbelievable crack. Unbel- it feels selfish. I'm having so much fun. It, it actually feels selfish. To the point that I have to wonder. Is this even entertaining? Or is this just me having fun with people watching? I'm writing about... Nine songs a week. I'm, I'm writing... So, so what it is, is, is like... Writing music to a video game. Using all my different instruments, but essentially using what's happened in the video game as inspiration to write the songs. Which means there's no way to have creative block, because there's a continual stream of stimulation that I respond to creatively. And I'm writing about four songs a stream. The hit rate is about 50%, by which I mean... If I write four or five songs a stream, chances are two of them are good enough that I would consider those demos that I would develop into something further. Because that's what I'm doing. I'm trying to allow people to see what my creative process is. When you're songwriting, all you want is to get really catchy chords, a good bass line, and a catchy melody with good phrasing of words. That's all you're looking for. You're not necessarily looking for the best lyrics you're looking for an idea the basic shape of a song a sketch of a song that you can then take away and develop into something better but you're fishing for ideas you're fishing for those catchy melodies and yeah my 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 hit rate seems to be about 50% which is pretty high for in terms of my own songwriting process 50% is pretty high because I'm receiving continual visual stimulation from playing the video game and it's unbelievable fun it's so much crack twitch.tv forward slash the blind by podcast um, generally around half nine at night is when I do it in general Wednesday, Thursday, Fridays thereabouts but I leave the streams up anyway so you can re-watch them but it's it's most crack when you're watching it live because you can interact with me and you can chat with me so this week I have for you a live podcast it's been so long, I can't even remember the last time I did a live podcast. It, it, it feels, I was listening back to this when I was putting it together for this episode. 
it feels like an alternate reality. It's only been four months since I've done a live gig, but the idea of being up on stage with a room full of people, just, it feels like, it's not even that it feels like in the past. It feels like a different reality, like a dream world. I'm listening back to the podcast and I'm having to go, wow, did I actually do that? You mean I was in a room and loads of people were sitting really close to each other and it was normal. So I've got a live podcast for you. I'm sitting on quite a few live podcasts that I can put out to give a nice break because I haven't put a live podcast out in about five weeks. This podcast is incredibly enjoyable. It's an interview with Senator Lynn Ruan. And Lynn is someone I greatly admire. She is a really concise speaker. What what I admire most about Lynn is she's congruent. Okay, and I've said this about the guests on this podcast that I admire the most are the ones with congruency. In that when Lynn speaks, it's quite clear that what she feels and what she thinks is also what she says. There's a clear line of honest congruence and that then translates as someone worth listening to. When you hear someone speaking and you're like, this person is, I'm listening to what they're saying, it's often because they're being congruent. Their emotional world is what is being spoken there and then without any barriers and that's engaging. So Lynn is a senator, obviously. She's a current senator. Yeah, this podcast is from like six months ago. So in the podcast, we mentioned that she's looking for re-election. She has since been re-elected as senator and is a sitting senator at the moment. She speaks about addiction. Addiction and the condition of society around addiction, the legislation around addiction. Lynn herself has spent years working in the community. Um, with people who are living with addiction. She's written a book. I know by I know when you finish listening to this podcast, you'll want to buy her book. Um, her book is called People Like Me, Lynn Ruan. And it's just a, a really engaging chat, a really engaging, interesting chat. It was a pleasure for me to listen back to it. And often as well with live podcasts, you know that sometimes I caught it at the end. And sometimes I don't put out the audience questions. This one I did put out the audience questions because her, the chat she gave was so engaging to the audience that the questions at the end were just unbelievably on point. So I left the whole thing in. So it's quite a long podcast, but it's one of those ones that's it's it's long because it has to be. It's worth it, you know. So before I get into it, we'll do a little ocarina pause. Not an ocarina, I've got a shaker. Adverts. Adverts. Advertising. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Advertising. That was the shaker pause, ocarina pause. There was an advert there for something. I don't know what it was. All right. Um, the Patreon. Right, this podcast is supported by you, the listener, via the Patreon page. This is a fully independent podcast. I am beholden to nobody. No one tells me what to talk about. No one tells me how long my podcast should be. No one tells me who I should or shouldn't have as a guest. This is a 100% independent podcast funded by you, the listener. Right? Every so often there's an advertiser, but I can tell them to fuck off. They have to really, they have to come to me and make the case as to why they should be able to advertise on my podcast rather than me chasing them. And this is the model that's working. Um, it's also, it's my this podcast is my sole source of income. It's a lot of work. And by becoming a patron of the podcast, you're, you're just supporting me for the work that I'm doing. If you're listening to the podcast, consider paying me for the work that I'm doing. Um, I usually ask for the price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month. Patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast. If you can't afford that, you don't have to. That's fine. Someone else is going to pay for you. But if you can afford it, if you can afford to give me the price of a pint or a cup of coffee and you're listening to the podcast, please consider it. Become part of the crowdfunded effort so this thing continues forward as a fully independent podcast if you like it for what it is it's because it's independent also once a month i will pick one patron at random and this patron will receive a hand drawing i'm going to draw this person a picture and i'll send it to you in the post all right that's just a little treat for the patrons so thank you very much for that let's get into the live podcast with senator lynn ruan I hope you enjoy it. I know you will. Yort, I'll catch you next week. I might have a little hot take. Um, what, what I want to start off with, right, because with these things, always what I do is I ask Twitter for questions, right? And I'm going to start with this one because a, a, a man wrote it with no sense of irony whatsoever. <laughs> like he was dead serious. So the question was, does she kiss her kids with that mouth? Thank you. And then a, a screen grab of a tweet that you'd sent, which simply said, ejection cunt. <laughs> and like, firstly, I was going like, Jesus Christ, man, are you really going to be policing curses? But I felt 
it's quite an apt uh, question to ask you because you're a senator, um, you're inside in the Senate. And I say cunt a lot. Yeah! <laughs> but a huge amount of shitty critique that is directed against you has nothing to do with the content of your words, but it has to do with how you deliver it. So your mouth is Ming Flanagan's jumper. <laughs> or the lack of Mick Wallace's jumper. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, so, yeah, so I, I can't, I'm trying so hard to remember what injection cunt rhymes with. Because I was actually being really clever with that tweet. It's a was, bit odd. Like, well, I, like, so they had, they had, it was about a by-election candidate, an extremely racist by-election candidate. And when they keep coming at me now, I've decided that I'm not going to give airtime to debate. So I just keep exactly. saying, fuck off, fuck off. But they had said something. And I know that I, at the time, injection cunts was a really, really clever comeback. But I can't remember what was a comeback to. So I wish they had have actually given the fourth part of that joke. Is it like an ejector seat, but for cunts? <laughs> yeah. Basically, but so it doesn't really matter what I say uh, in politics. So my accent will garner a lot of interest. I get men writing, you know, four-page letters to me and correcting my grammar on radio yeah. stations, yeah. on the telly, telling me what way I should have grammatically said something, how I should pronounce something. And basically... I know how I should speak, and how I should speak is exactly how I'm speaking. Exactly. And, and, and the majority of people in Dublin have a flat Dublin accent like me. I've no interest. I mean, Sister Bridget tried very, very hard in sixth year to teach me how to say this, that, these, and those. And, <laughs> and I ignored her, so I'm definitely going to ignore every single misogynist, racist, classist online that tries to tell me but how to speak. Do you know too. what fucking pisses me off about it, Lynn? Is the same people who'd be correcting your grammar on how you speak are the same ones who probably think James Joyce is class. And there is no, you can only read James Joyce in your accent. And if you don't read it in your accent, you're wrong. Like there's Americans who are spending three years trying to figure out what Ulysses is about. And if you just simply read it to them, they could just leave in a week. But it's a fact. It is like, it's, um, but like even with James Joyce wasn't accepted for a long, long time either. Like, so people, people have, people want to try and own you and respect you when you've made it. Do you know yeah. what I mean? And I feel like that's a little bit like that with me sometimes. Mm -hmm. So like, I mean, every struggle that I've gone through, through life, whether it be through addiction, whether it be through, um, you know, just inequality in the education system, a whole cohort of society are waiting there till you've made it and then they claim you. And it's the same with James Joyce. I mean, people ridiculed him for a long time and didn't accept him and, and, and how he wrote. And how he wrote was, you know, it was very ridiculed by other people that and said that English... his bones on an airplane. You know, exactly. Like, so, you know, for me, it's like we... When people want to claim you when you've made it, you know, mm -hmm. but they weren't there when you fought the system. They weren't there when you tried to battle your way through um, an unfair um, community that was riddled with deprivation, with so many people, with so many potential, they weren't there. But there's this whole society that when somehow you have a platform, they all want to champion you, yeah. you know? And it's kind of like, well, you know, you don't really have a right to champion me. And they expect you to want to become them instead of going, no, actually, I still want to talk like me. I still want yeah. to live in Tallaght. And I still want to you know, have all my friends flourish within their own communities. Like, we don't want to escape where we're from. We yeah. just want to have the same access. 
yeah. where we live, you know, but they, it's, it's like, whether it's me, James Joyce or anybody that is not like speaking the, what they deem as, as English language, you know, they, they want to, um, they think you're going to progress to be one of them rather than you remain who you are. Um, Everyone in this room has a, an idea of who you are, right? But the mm -hmm. podcast is being recorded live and there's going to be some Greeks listening. And um, <clears throat> can you tell us a bit about, like, you're from Tala. Mm -hmm. What was it like growing up in Tala in, in, the, in the early 90s for yourself? Um, I wouldn't swap growing up where I grew up for anything in the world. Um, I would obviously swap in terms of some of our experiences but growing up for me, I grew up in a small little cul-de-sac in Kilinarden. Um, I had a lovely childhood. I had amazing parents. I suppose I started experiencing the differences that exist geographically or demographically in communities when I hit my teenage years. And yeah. I experienced a lot of my friends dying. Um, like just yesterday, it was my pal's anniversary, Tracy, and it was her, my other pal's anniversary, Bernie, who died on the exact same day, and then my other friend, John, died on Tracy's 21st birthday. Do you know what I mean? So it was yeah. like, we're, we're, everyone was just dying um, yeah. as I was growing up. And for me, um, whatever about the lack of resources in our community, when young people are faced at such an early age with the idea that you might not live very long, your relationship with risk changes. So a lot of people die in communities where there's a high amount of deprivation and poverty due to risky behavior. Yeah. But that risky behavior is often completely um, attached to the idea that, you know, I'm not going to live very long, so why should I put all these barriers in place or all these, you know, why would I engage in education if all my friends are dying around me? So. That would have been my experience. Like my, I, I obviously had a much nicer experience as well, but I feel like it's those really powerful experiences of death and addiction and poverty that probably molded me more than others. Yeah. Now, a working class experience is a broad spectrum. Mm -hmm. I mean, there'd be people that grew up in my community that would be going, what the fuck is she talking about? Where was she living? Yeah. Like, And I'm only living on the road in front of them. So sometimes you're... you're but it was even like backstage, like you were you were having a slag with Emmett, you know, and you grew yeah. very close to each other, yeah. but you were saying to him... He got his grass cut. Yeah, they got yeah. their grass cut. And... <laughs> Raheen got their grass cut. Yeah. And they got their paper delivered. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so me and Emma kind of slag each other off because, uh, I mean, I literally live two minutes from where Emma grew up. And we, yeah. and we played snooker in the same snooker hall growing up and we've had mad experience of raids in that snooker hall and fucking raves and the lot like, you know. So our experiences are exactly the same. But when I looked from my house to his house, I was like, they're over there cutting the verges on your man's grass, like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? So even within some communities, within a very close-knit community, you have different experiences, yeah. you know? And you get that even in terms of progression to third-level education. Yeah. Like, people literally living, you know, on the opposite side of a fence to each other have very different experiences in life. And, I mean, I think that just shows the stark level of inequality that exists in urban communities especially i mean in rural communities you have less of the private system yeah so you have poverty and you have yeah. isolation and you have inequality but people are being uh, schooled together as well like so yeah. there's kind of less of an obvious divide sometimes between people which i think is a much better place to be in mm -hmm. 
Um, you're, a lot of the work you do inside in the Shannon, you speak out for addiction a lot, and a huge amount of the questions that I got tonight were about uh, addiction. One of the questions was, does a background in working with people, because you did community work with addiction mm. as well, didn't you? A lot, uh, look at me over there at my fucking pint, <laughs> asking questions. I, I, the optics of this is very bad. Thank fuck I'm not a politician. Um, <laughs> does a background in working with people addicted to drugs, alcohol, etc., help with working with people who are addicted to power? Um, I think working with people that are aware of their addiction is much easier than working with people in power that don't realise they're fucking narcissists. <laughs> yeah, like... I, uh, you must... Your day-to-day -day job must involve dealing with an awful lot of pricks. Yeah. But does it, like... I, I, I mean, I won't say pricks, but people who are completely blinded to experiences yes. beyond their own. So I think one of the skills that I have, which very much comes from my upbringing and my experience of community life as an addiction worker, as a community worker, is that um, I'm good with people. Um, I'm good with relationship building, and I'm good with not judging people based on their experience in life. And I think I try to apply that same method to working with people in politics. Because for me, I do, as an independent senator, I don't have the power of a, a party that can just introduce legislation and pass it through and everyone's going to vote for it. I rely very much on the skills that I've built as a yeah. working class woman to be able to engage with people, to bring my lived experience, my political knowledge and my understanding of what progression looks like into the same space and be able to present it to politicians without them being able to rule me out of the game yeah. based on the fact that I think they're pricks. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, like when I was in college I learned about the three faces of power mm -hmm. and one of the faces was of power was being able to set the agenda and I took that to heart straight away and I was like well what will stop me being able to set the agenda what will stop me being sitting around the table with the justice departments discussing the expungement of minor convictions and it will be if I just keep attacking them and keep voting no 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 they're not going to they're just going to shut the doors down yeah. on me so I need to use my skills as an addiction worker and as a community worker and bring it into that space because you know people write laws and legislation because they think they know better than you yeah but they're talking in the abstract. They're talking about things they've never experienced before. But if you can bring your knowledge and your personal experience into that space, they can't argue with your lived reality. Mm -hmm. So I need to make sure that I conduct myself in a way that I can sit in the room and set the agenda because it is one of the faces of power. And if I just keep, you know, if I just attack, 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 I won't be invited into the room. You know, and then I need to acknowledge what role am I playing in terms of social movements and social change? Because I'm not. What I'm doing is I'm looking at incremental changes. What is the bill in front of me? How can I change that so that it doesn't affect the people that I care about and the people that I love? So I need to be able to balance that. If I see a massive social surge of left-wing politics, I need to then be able to drop that relationship building that I've done as an independent senator and joined the movement. But right now, I know what I'm doing, and what mm -hmm. I'm doing is I'm trying to make changes to, to policy that ends up in front of me, and I'm trying to 
um, create access for people who have minor convictions that have uh, that have have addiction to be able to enter education, to be able to enter the workforce, and that's just where I need to focus right now. And you know, it's probably not ideal in yeah. terms of big massive social change, but I'm using the skills and tools that I have right now to be able to implement that. So I do judge them as people that have an addiction to power, and yeah. they do. And you know what? Maybe I do too now because mm-hmm. I have a platform that I never had before and they're not fucking taking it off. There you go. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. Um, what, um, so in the years that you were working in the community uh, in, in, in addiction services, like what, what was the biggest thing you took from that? What did you learn about the human condition from doing that? Do you know what? It's not even that deep. It's like, that could be me. So it's always known at every moment that something that someone else is experiencing is not too far away from your own experience. Um, And for me, working with the community sounds like it's something removed from me, but it's not. When I was working with the community, I was working with me. I was working with people like me. Mm -hmm. I was working with people that, um, do you know what? And I I felt a guilt as well because I was absolutely mental. I was broken. Um, I'm an addict, true and true. I've every addict behavior. I've lived my life with rage. I've hurt people that I care about. I've had behaviors that weren't accepted by society and would have been judged. I, you know, and I still have some of them. So I'm no different than the people that I've worked with and work for. So mm-hmm. what what I learned is just that I am one of a few that managed to walk away from a life of heroin addiction. Mm-hmm. And I w- always wonder why I'm not an addict in terms of having to use a substance daily. And I think there's a very fine line between me and the people that I work with. Are you talking about a kind of like a survivor guilt type of thing? Massively, yeah. massively. Because what's the point? You know, when I, when I wrote my book... Um, when I wrote my book, I was so afraid of how people were going to view me and judge me and the things that I was going to share, whether it be about addiction, whether it be about the anger in me that has really negatively affected the people that I love. So my trauma and how that manifests in my family, you know, because it's not that, like people try and herald me as some sort of, sure, look, isn't she great? Look what she's done. And I'm like, well, look at the fucking destruction I've left behind. Like, you know, mm-hmm. there's, there's, it, it's there. I've hurt people and I've caused that. And, you know, when I wrote the book, I just, I, I realized when I got to the end that it wasn't Middle Ireland, it wasn't politicians, it wasn't even Trinity. It was, oh my God, am I going to be rejected by my own community for writing this? And yeah. I realized there and then why I'm doing this, where my heart is and who I'm fighting for. And what is the point of me succeeding if they're not there with me? What is the point? It's just another anomaly. I, I'm just a person that will be used as a weapon against mm-hmm. their own community and saying, well, mm-hmm. why didn't all you do that? Look at her, you know? And the neoliberal fucking, you know, machine will use me and use my story to beat other people over the head that haven't managed to do what I've done. And that's not fair because I am an, I am an anomaly in the t- sense of the political sense. 
but so many people succeed in their communities. Nobody wants to tell their stories. Uh, stories are told in the news as extremes, mm-hmm. where it's only ever told when something's bad has happened, and that's just not an accurate picture, you know. So, for me, like it's you know, I I I really learned who I am and what I'm about. Um, by writing my story and who I wanted to accept me. And it was actually my own community. And like you spoke there about uh, like the trauma that you've been through in your life, right? When you sat down to write that book, which is like a biography, what was that process like? Did, did you have to, is there anything you had to write about in that book, right? What it's like memories you hadn't confronted or anything and you're fucking going through that as the process of writing. Um, two things, I suppose, I won't, um, I won't go into it now, but one of them would have been um, a sexual assault that mm-hmm. I had to, for the very first time, talk to my family about. Um, and the other one was possibly facing up to the idea of who I thought I was. So I was a teen mother that fought her way through many obstacles. But I had to probably face that I wasn't possibly the best mother I should have been. Mm-hmm. Um, to my children. So I was in a, a space where trauma was very much in me. I didn't realize um, anger. And then I used to try and make excuses for that a lot. So I yeah. used to always say, oh, well, I wouldn't have got where I was if I wasn't so determined and I wasn't so angry and I wasn't so this. But actually my existence and my experiences was having an intergenerational impact. And I'm the one that fights in policy and fights at a government level to try and stop the intergenerational impact of trauma and poverty and, you know, lack of employment or lack of education. But I didn't manage to stop the trauma at me. Mm-hmm. And that's something I had to realise with the book, that I actually passed on a huge amount of the trauma that I experienced straight down into the next generation behind me. And in terms of, like, just self-learning and self-development do you think writing the book was it was it a good or a bad thing from from where you are right now it, it was an amazing thing yeah i think i'm a better person i think i've i've been in therapy since i'm a young since i'm young you know and but with this was um i've always gone on the line from the, the people that i've worked with that have been in addiction and they would say to me you're only as sick as your secrets you're only as sick as your secrets so i feel that the book allowed me to face up to myself and some of those secrets and be able to put them out there and I suppose I also had a huge fear being a politician that um somebody would go away and write my story for me yeah and I wanted to give an accurate picture of what my life was like what my what my family's life was like what their what my daughter's father's lives were like and I wanted to do that in a in a way that we had an input to how our story was told, because so many working class people get stories told about them. It's always somebody else telling their stories. It's always a journalist that cares about us writing their stories. It's always an NGO that wants to fight for us telling their stories. It's always politicians who are middle class who happen to care about the working class telling their stories for us. So for me, it's like until we're actually telling the stories for ourselves, we've absolutely no amount of equality in this country. So you have to hear my accent, you have to hear traveller accents, you have to hear migrant accents, and until they're there, well then, you know, what? Yeah. there's no point in people doing things for us. We need to be in the room doing that. So the book was a big part of me being able to make sure that if my story was going to be told, I was going to be the one that told it. Fair fucking play. Um... 
one question that was asked there, because you, you mentioned uh, the immigrant community. Uh, how does Lynn believe we can better integrate immigrants into society without creating the us versus them narrative? Um, I think... I think I struggle to speak for like I've just gave a speech about when people speak for each other and speak people speak by themselves. <laughs> and then I asked that question. <laughs> Sorry. So I'm kind of reluctant, I suppose, to speak on behalf of a community and to speak with any real authority in terms of what they need and want. All I can say is that um, we all benefit from equality. We all benefit from diversity. Um, for me, the system in terms of how we process applications, I mean, if you look to... to I, I'm sorry for being political, but to look at the budget issue... You're a fucking politician, Lynn, for fuck's I'm sake. I'm not! I'm not! Don't tell anyone! She um, said... I, met, I, met her, I remember the first time I met you, started roaring at me. I roared Why at the me. fuck are, am I not on your podcast? You're not having me on because I'm a politician. <laughs> Screaming at me, mortifying me. <laughs> I absolutely took the fucking head off him, right? And I was t it was the first time he'd ever met me. I was like, here are you. <laughs> but I felt he never had politicians on. And I don't like getting kind of siloed into that because I feel that I've pursued politics as a means and a way to have a narrative on, on the table in terms of policy. So I didn't want to be ruled out on them grounds. And uh, I felt it was an injustice flying by, an injustice. But um, in terms of immigrants, I think the problem is like, I mean, some, someone, I'm on the, the, the committee for um, issues facing the traveling community. And a, a man called Patrick Nevin, um, a traveler man who runs the Tala um, Community Development Project, he said something that really, really impacted on me. And he said that travelers have been used as the template for racism in this country. Mm -hmm. And we didn't challenge it then, you know, with our, with our own original Irish people. And it's like the same process is happening again where we ostracize communities. And I think we just really need to own up and have real conversations about you know, what, what, is, what, what is actually wrong with you if you can't just look at another person and get... To, like, I don't... I, I really struggle to understand racism. And I, under, I struggle to understand why people have an issue with colour, accent, anything like that. And, and for me, it's, you know, we need to fix the system, first of all. We need to stop media outlets and we need to stop how information is shared online in terms yeah. of... Um, the migrant community. Yeah. And like, I mean, you're one from Fina Gale getting fucking yeah. sauntered through a direct provision centre so that she could say all of a sudden she 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 doesn't think that people from a migrant back, background are deprogrammed. And we keep platforming it. We, like, th even now, even now we're platforming hate, like. Yeah. I mean, it's, that one scared the fuck out of me because it's like she's a politician and she'd just seen a few too many Facebook memes. Yeah. And... Oh, but that's what it is. What she was saying, like, it, it, it made me realise, like, I know loads of mas and dads and, and friends, and they just have these really shit opinions that they get from something they saw on Facebook, and they run with it. Mm. And it was naive of me, but to go, holy fucking hell, she's a politician and she's really ignorant. Do you know what I mean? Well, I see, I think... We're, we're, for a long time, politicians have been expected to just be politicians and that somehow they know what they're doing. 
where someone like me or someone from a different background comes into politics, we have to work a million times harder than everyone else because we are proving ourselves on behalf of a particular ethnicity group, community, blah, blah, blah. And you have politicians just walk into Leinster House every day. And I'm sitting there going, oh my God, like they've been in government the last 40 years. What? the fuck is that coming yeah, out of their mouth? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. And it's the most ignorant. Like, they don't even read the legislation that's in yeah. front of them. Like, it happened during the, the legislation on the Eighth Amendment. It ended up all over the news, of course, because my mouth jumps in. But, like, this politician walks in and he started spouting stuff that was not even part of the debate. It wasn't in the legislation. But he's never been questioned for 30 years. It's just assumed... It's just assumed how because he's a politician does, does he knows happen? what he's doing. Like, like I, I don't know the, 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 the wheels of politics, right? How the fuck does that happen? Like, why doesn't someone say, you're talking out of your arse? Well, I did say that. But are you in the Basically, doll? Are you, you're in the Shannon. Well, what, you, what, what distinction are you making there between I don't, the doll See, and I the don't Shannon? fucking really know what I'm talking about, I'll be honest. I honest, right. I'll be honest, like, I, I know the Shannon is, is the one, people who are elect, elected from universities or something. No, there's it? only six of us out of 60 elected from universities. But you're not in the doll, are you? No, hang it's on a minute It's a different room, now. isn't He's it? He's trying to rile me up now. I'm right? not! I haven't a fucking clue. I honestly right. haven't a clue. I'll reef you, right? You're listening. So, the Shannon and the doll, the upper house and the lower house, yeah? Yeah. So, historically, of course, the doll has been the one that gets reported on and gets all the news and blah, 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 right? But if you actually look statistically at what the Shannon receives, which is the upper house, so legislation has to go through the Shannon through five stages, and then it has to go through the doll through five stages, and vice versa. So if it starts in the doll, it has to go through the Shannon. So no piece of legislation actually comes into law without being seen by both houses. We amend it, we, cr we, we critique it, we spend a lot of time... Like, the amount of amendments I want to legislation that don't get aired... Because one of the... A lot of questions that I got that were very cynical were, again, it was, it was Daz, and they were saying, uh, how does she feel to have a job that has no power? <laughs> like, would you agree or disagree with... with I disagree. I would... I would um, and I understand historically that that yeah. has been the view. So I don't think that that's unfounded, what they're talking about, because in the past, you know, government have had a majority amount of senators in the, in the Senate, which means that you don't really have power, Right. But, like, say tomorrow my bill uh, is going to pass committee stage on um, liberalising the expungement of minor convictions, yeah. right? Now, that's, that's practically unheard of for an independent left-wing senator to be able to get things through those stages, right? If you and, actually and can you simplify what that is? What, what is? what is the legislation? Those words that you said. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> what, what, what's that? So... To break it down, so currently in Ireland, um, if you have one conviction on your record, you'll be able to get it spent after seven years. Yeah. Now, to exclude violent sexual crimes, murder, they're excluded from the legislation, so does, they're not actually in the conversation, they're, they're different legislation. So, other convictions. If you have one conviction, you, you can't get that taken off your record for seven yeah. years, which means in, in a lot of cases you can't travel to America, you can't access certain degrees, you mm -hmm. can't study medicine, psychology, addiction, social work. Mm -hmm. um, and most people um, that have one conviction um, 
you know, generally, so a lot of people don't reoffend, right? So you have the people mm-hmm. that don't reoffend, but they'll have to wait seven years. Mm-hmm. But then you have people that maybe were in addiction at the time. So maybe mm-hmm. they committed five offenses in one day. Mm-hmm. They will never, even two offenses, will never, ever, ever be removed off your, off, off your record, ever. Mm-hmm. So every time you try and study a certain degree or you try and do a certain course, do you know what? And do you know who, what's affecting now? Uh, men and women trying to volunteer with their local GAA clubs, sports clubs, mm-hmm. uh, summer projects, things like that. And you all of a sudden have to explain that 10 years ago when you were 19, you happened to rob out of a shop on these whatever occasions. And all of it, like that, it just stays with you. So you are eternally punished. Yeah. And rehabilitation is non-existent. And basically for the rest of your life, you will pay for that for that crime. Which is fucking horrendous. So my legislation um, liberalises that. Mm -hmm. So it removes the barrier in which how many crimes can be removed. So instead of looking at how many crimes someone committed, you're looking at how long are they not offending for. So you're looking at the gap in which someone has offended. So instead of looking at seven years, you're going, well, it was only theft of whatever. Like I was in court as a kid, so I'm an ex-offender. I've, I'm an ex- I, I robbed cars, I robbed shops, I robbed all sorts, but now I'm a national legislator. Yeah. So can you, <laughs> can you imagine all the potential out there that's not being able to access yeah. employment? Yeah. You know, imagine how great the Justice Department would look at if it actually had some intel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, so basically it's just about expanding that. You know, I'm reading a book at the minute by Michel uh, uh, Foucault. And he kind of maps out how we moved from public torture to yeah. prisons. You know, so you're moving from the, 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 the public spectacle of taking someone's life because of a crime they committed. So the control of one's body to the control of one's soul and future. And that's where we're at now. So you have a judge, you have a police, you have a justice department. They'll all make a judgment on this person, but then they can step away and never have to experience this person again. Yeah, because isn't Foucault's thing, it's like he viewed almost like the public execution as being more humane than <laughs> what we currently do. Yeah, I'm not it's promoting the sanitization. I'm not promoting that. No, but like, it's but yeah, because his it means parents that were doctors but or something. But, it means he, that, but he was a communist as well. Like, and yeah. he... he, he so it means that the person actually making the judgment on somebody had to have a direct, a direct relationship. Yeah. So the executioner who made a judgment was involved in the execution. But now you have people this, you know, this far removed from somebody drone making killings. a call it's on like someone's drone killings. life. It's like drone killings. Like it's yeah. sanitizing uh, yeah. brutality yeah. as such. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So that's that's what the legislation is. So have I you don't had see much the... resistance? Have you had much resistance against that legislation? No. 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 So when you explain it to politicians, they're like, fuck it, Lynn, that makes sense. Yeah. Because do you know why? Do you know why? Because they're all getting emails as well. Like, I've had ministers ring me and say, so, Lynn, uh, I just got an email and uh, this fellow was caught with cannabis in 1998. And I'm like, you're asking me your own letter. <laughs> Your own legislation. Well, just support me legislation and tell him it'll be sorted out. So, like, I mean, Very good. even though it really negatively impacts working class communities because the beat on the street. So just imagine you're in, in a community that doesn't need over-policing. So you're a young man, you're living in a certain community, you have weed in your pocket, 
But if you're a young man in, in Jobstown or Killinarden and you've weed in your pocket, what's the likelihood of you bumping yeah. into a guard or a stop and search? They're very, very different. So you have same people committing the same crimes, but only certain people ending up in court and the prison system. Yeah. You know, so like it's 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 it is a class issue as well. Mm-hmm. But you do have people that can't even apply for promotions, say in the HSC because guards of, going, yeah. Oh, they're from a good family, it's grand, we'll just throw the weed away. Yeah. And talk to the parents. Yeah. yeah. Which is what happens, like. Well, it does, yeah. It's, yeah. It is a class issue, like, yeah. Um, it's time for you to get a pint and have a piss. And then we'll come back out in about 15 minutes. Is that all right? <laughs> all right. <laughs> What's the crack? Um, we were talking backstage... While I was uh, explaining why I couldn't roll cigarettes, <laughs> I was bullied. I was bullied in school about rolling. I I I I achieved a nickname. My nickname was Pritstick. <laughs> because when I was about fucking thirteen, I arrived in with a giant that was rolled with Pritstick at home in my room, dead, <laughs> dead fucking proud of myself. And then one of the boys in school figured out that I'd actually used. No, I admitted it like a fucking idiot. And. The name Pritstick stuck with me. I was... But, like, I mean, you're smoking a giant and basically sniffing glue at the same time. Like, that's a bit of a (laughs) win-win. A little bit, but uh, I lost the memory in my hands of how to roll, and to this day I cannot roll, so I have a bit of a bang. And I was over in fucking in Los Angeles, and they had the pre-rolled giants. And it was... Do you know what? It made me very fucking angry. No, it, it did, because, like... Here in Ireland, if you want to get a bit of baldy, you have to take whatever's going, which means paranoia or whatever goes along with it. In, in Los Angeles, walking into a shop there, right, and just saying to them, literally at the counter, I want to feel, I want giggles at the start, <laughs> then I want my lips to buzz, and then I want to feel that lovely feeling in my kneecaps. <laughs> and your one behind the counter goes, yeah, we have that. <laughs> And hands me a... And she's gorgeous. Yeah. (laughs) Nine fucking dollars. And I'm still walking around like in a little medical bag. And I'm walking around the place hiding up my jumper. And your one's going, it's okay. It's okay. (laughs) Smoking it in front of guards and everything over there. Actually, they have a security company over there. And and the back of their jacket says Garda. (laughs) I swear to God, the Los Angeles, like uh, the lads that go to the banks to mine the money. Garda is the name of the company. Um... We were talking about the potentiality of... Is that a word? It, it is, is now. It? Yeah. it is now. Of if drugs were legalised in Ireland and utilising people who are already selling drugs and operating in the drugs market and the expertise that they have, and what could they... The potential... The potential I didn't know could, this conversation was coming out onto the stage. But anyway, here we go. But it was a, it was a fantastic point. Was. What were you getting at there? So... Um, about 10 years ago... Mind the, the mic there. It's, it's, just, it's on your it's chin. A, it's a robot blowjob again, is it? Yeah. All oh, right. An it's a robot blowjob from a fucking a 60-year-old <laughs> with a droopy cock who <laughs> has it on your chin. Nothing unusual there, so... <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> Election material... Robot blowjobs <laughs> in Rwanda. <laughs> but 
But um, yeah, no, when, when it comes to drug dealers, so for me, the conversation around addiction and the selling of drugs is often a similar conversation. So people get involved in drug dealing um, because of lack of resources, lack of opportunity. Um, everyone wants to succeed. It doesn't matter where you're from, what social class or, or group or whatever country you're born into. People want the same things and they want to be able to um, feel like they are successful and feel like that they're good at what they're doing. So if if people feel deprived of a particular thing, they will find the avenues in which they can succeed. And often that is drug dealing. And the biggest issue, I suppose, for most countries is the violence that goes with drug dealing is the thing that people are are, are rightly, you know, traumatised and upset by. But the actual drug dealing itself is just one, one part of that conversation. And about, I'd say it was about 10 years ago myself and Dr. Fiona O'Reilly um, that runs the safety net services. I don't know if any of you know, like the mobile health unit that it's, uh, provides um, health care to people that need health care the most, but are probably the least likely to receive it. So it drives around the streets, works with the homeless community, the migrant community. So many years ago, we carried out a piece of research with 10 middle-ranking drug dealers. Now, that's not an actual scale, so we had to figure out <laughs> what are middle-ranking drug dealers. So we definitely made that scale ourselves. So we, we decided that in our frame of, of our um, piece of research, that middle-ranking drug dealers were people that were making a profit from selling drugs within their communities. So you're not looking at the international level of it, you're looking at community drug dealing. And it's people that were not um, on heroin. So heroin obviously was one of the prime chaotic, problematic drug uses at the time. So they weren't feeding their own habit of, of either heroin use or crack use. Um, but they did um, engage in recreational drug use. So they did use cocaine and I developed um, the telecocaine service, which was one of the first responses. It was actually the first response to nasal cocaine use in the country back in the late 2000s. So it was working with that particular group. Um, they had professional backgrounds as well, you know, and, and, and the clientele was very different. So when we carried out the research with them, with 10 of them, it was like an ethnographic kind of anthropology. So it wasn't statistical based. We spent time with people. We told our stories. And one of the threads that came up amongst um, those drug dealers were um, they were 12 and 13 when they started drug dealing. Yeah. And the primary reason for those, um, it was all men, um, was that they wanted to have the same things that other people maybe living next door or on the street had. So some people started selling drugs because they didn't want, one quote in the thing was, I didn't want to wear my older brother's hand-me-downs anymore. And that was his motivation at the time. Another motivation was from a man that wanted to, a, not a man, it's not even fair to say, a young boy who wanted to raise enough money to be able to get weather glazed windows. And um, at the time, um, the council hadn't started putting weather glazed windows in every house. It was just the people that could afford to start putting porches on their houses and weather glazes. And he was like, we're getting slagged, like, because, you know, and, and I just want to get weather glazed windows. And another fellow wanted to buy um, an adequate amount of cutlery for his house because there was like 12 kids in the house. And he sometimes of a morning going to school would have to eat a cereal out of the sink. So yeah. there was all these comments that were coming at me and so for me people started applying their 
natural ability to be able to think logically and reason and go, well, how do I get myself out of this situation? And the thing that I'm presented with is that I can make money as a 12, 13, 14-year-old young man from selling hash or E or speed. And, 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 I, and I did as well as a 12 and 13-year-old. I sold speed and E and... Um, for me, I felt all of a sudden that I, we were joking about it out the back, but I was like, my maths teacher kept telling me I was terrible and I kept asking questions, going, I don't understand, I don't understand. But all of a sudden I was sitting at home in my ma's kitchen going, quarter, eight, yeah, chop that up, chop that up, chop that up. And I was like, who the fuck is not good at maths? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so all of a sudden I was just... And I didn't understand the impact. It was more going, I can do this, actually. And people are telling me I'm good at this and I'm making a bit of money off this. And so all of a sudden, my sense of value and sense of self and my sense of being able to compete in the world became from, came from something that society said was wrong and you shouldn't do that. And that's where the, the, you know, the conflict comes up. But then you look at countries that begin to legalize drug use and they... They talk about how you can take the drug market out of the hands of people that are killing people and violence, and, and that's all completely understandable. But the conversation that's not happening is what happens to those group of people that have, you know, their, 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 their local economy is built on a huge amount of, of drug dealing. So they don't all of a sudden just decide to, you know work in Microsoft or Google or these places, but they've all these skills. So we can't have a conversation about legalization without having a conversation about the competencies and skills that exist within some communities. And if we, if we want an end to crime and violence, can we not have a conversation that includes people that want to exit, that actually want to exit drug dealing? But they've been 10, 20, 30 years drug dealing, they don't have a work record, they can't say, oh well, I've been travelling for 30 years. You know, so their CV is completely empty, but actually there's a huge amount, yeah. amount of people that want to exit. So how can we match the conversation up around legalisation and around people that have skills in a market? You know, and actually, what can, like, and I've brought this up, I've met with, um, I was in Edinburgh recently where I met with prosecutors from all around the world and state attorneys from America and everyone is having these same conversations. And like in Colorado where they legalised um, marijuana, um, they're now saying that obviously they felt that they were going to have a positive impact on crime. But criminals don't just stop <laughs> being criminals. So how do we include people in that transition? And it is a controversial conversation. Because one of the things that I notice from listening to in California, right, and one of the angers that people have is, so cannabis is recreationally legal now in California, but the dispensaries and the business side of things is becoming quite privileged and white. That the white, like black and brown people who come from marginalized communities and didn't have money were being sent away to prison. Now it's legal, but they're not seeing enough black and brown people owning the cannabis businesses. It's middle class and upper class white people who have the capital to start these businesses. But it, it's like saying, like, so we'll have mass incarceration in America for black people, right? Mass incarceration. And you have white middle class people doing the exact same thing yeah. as a particular community, but yet they were criminals and they should be locked up and they should have their lives removed from them. But yet there's no difference. Um, one is illegal and one is illegal. And, and 
a positive out legalizing obviously drugs is um the quality of drugs that someone receives so i mean you know you have if it's legal it means that someone's going to be using a drug that is much safer than they would be if it was being chopped up on the street and stuff so there's a huge amount of positives to legalization and it's not something that i'm against it's something i'm for i fight for decriminalization because i don't think we're there yet on the conversation on where legalization. do you stand on uh, we'll say what portugal have done with drugs yeah so my bill that i tabled in within a year of being a politician for drug decriminalization is based on the portuguese model and can um, you tell us what that is for people who don't know? So basically, it's it's actually quite liberal in Portugal um, compared to what I think Ireland is 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 ready for. So it's ten days supply is seen as as personal use. And isn't um, that everything? Like is everything, everything. Yeah. yeah. So I don't differentiate between what drugs. So for me, decriminalisation is about decriminalising marginalisation and decriminalisation, decriminalisation of addiction, decriminalisation of poverty, and just decriminalisation of the person. So the so the drug is still illegal in a decriminalisation model, but the person is decriminalised in terms of the fact that they are in addiction or it's for their their personal possession. So what happened with my bill was, which is currently still adjourned, um, the department asked me, would I not push my bill at that time? And they would set up a working group to, to discuss um, decriminalisation. And the problem with that working group is that there was just a hell of a lot of vested interests at that table. DPP, guards, um, civil servants. Um, there was two people that have been true addiction themselves and been true services but against a huge institutional, you yeah. know, judges. And, and the, one of the judges um, on that working group actually brought out a minority report and said, basically said that people who were caught for their own possession, who were in addiction, should get harsher, harsher penalties. You know, and this is a man that's been at the helm of, like, where you think he would understand that people that are coming before him that are in addiction, like in Portugal the rate of blood-borne viruses has decreased because you're not sending people that have uh, addiction who are going to be sharing needles, who maybe have blood-borne viruses into a system where they're not going to have access to clean needles or, you know. So it really didn't make sense to me what he was doing. It made no sense at all. So what we have, what we're, what we have now is another kind of proposition from the government that is a little bit moved on from what we have but it's still a law for middle class people because basically if you're caught once with drugs you will be sent to uh, maybe um, like a healthcare professional mm -hmm. but if you're caught more than once then it becomes a crime so the only people that will be caught more than once are people who are in addiction because what's the likelihood of someone in addiction going, oh, I was caught with drugs, I am clean now, and I will never have drugs <laughs> in my pocket again. Thank God for the prohibition. <laughs> you know, what a great law. You know, so basically we do have a health uh, department, and I will give it to the health department. I think if it wasn't for the justice department in this country, the health department would have actually introduced decriminalization. But you have a justice department who is constantly battling against yeah. the health-led approach. So we don't, it's not just about us getting the health services on board, which I actually think we could do. 
It's actually the, the Justice Department who still want to see harsher sanctions. It's like this idea of, oh my God, won't someone think of the kids? You know, Don't be telling the kids that it's all right to use drugs as if prohibition has actually yeah. helped that in any shape or form. Do you know what I mean? But when is it all right to use the experience and pain and suffering of an addict as an example to other people? Why is that all right? Why is it all right to lock somebody up because they're in possession of a drug? Just so you can act as a harm to somebody else. That's not okay, like, you know? Yeah. Um, how does everyone in this room and everyone listening to the podcast help you with re-election? <laughs> Get a Trinity degree. <laughs> yeah, no, how does it, that's the thing. Like, it's no, so I, I mean that it's in a so very... Elite. I'm no. not saying that now just because you're on that. Like, I genuinely, I want to see you re-elected. I want to see you continue doing the things you do. Do we have any sway or power or do we have to make friends with somebody who's in Trinity? <laughs> Is that what it comes down to? Yeah, it, so this... it's, it's extremely elite. So since I've been elected, we've been fighting for Shannon reform. Like, there was a referendum. Because like, can you explain uh, the, how sen senators and the senators' um, relationship with universities, just what is that? So, first of all, can we just acknowledge his movement on supporting a politician on stage? <laughs> <laughs> She's not with a party. She's not with a party. If she, I, I'm okay platforming politicians as long as they're not with a fucking party. I'll have her and I'll have Mink Flanagan. Everyone else can fuck off. So basically, no, but I do. I want to see Lynn continuing to do her thing until she's eventually president. And I, I mean, yeah, I mean that. Um, so, I'm on a very elite panel, um, and I know that sounds ironic and hypocritical, um, but when I ran for the Senate on the Trinity panel, so basically Trinity graduates can vote for me to stay elected, and I want to take that as a positive, because I obviously acknowledge the class divide, the digital divide, the, 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 all of that, so much, but it's actually people who are not impacted by the class divide that actually put me where I am. And I think that that's a real sign of movement in Ireland that there's a whole cohort of people that have degrees and doctorates and they're in their professions and they're going, do you know what, we're going to vote for her. Yeah. There's actually nothing she can do for us. But she represents a particular voice and a particular community and we're going to support that. And I think I take that as a massive, massive honour, really. Yeah. Because... Um, when I was elected, I didn't think I was going to be elected. I ran on the platform so that I could be on the stage in a hostings with people so that I could try and mould the conversation in a particular direction so that I was just part of the actual conversation. But the only other person to get in on the front first run, as far as I'm aware, is Mary Robinson. And the only other person to unseat an incumbent was 30 years ago, and that was David Norris. Mm -hmm. So... You have two absolute trailblazers that have only ever kind of messed up them statistics, and then you had me. And I was kind of like going, what, what the fuck? Now I have to be a senator. I have absolutely no clue what this is about. But, Lynn, before you became a senator, right, and when you were in Trinity College, like, what, what was... Were you getting involved in activism in Trinity College? Like, what were you doing in Trinity College before <laughs> Senator even became something you wanted to do? So, no, I didn't get involved straight away in Trinity. Um, what did you study in Trinity? Uh, so I studied a four-subject degree, which was polit political science, philosophy, economics, and sociology. Mm -hmm. 
And I went to Trinity so I could learn a language of people that I felt were keeping me out of the conversation because our services and communities were being completely destroyed and we had politicians speak to us in a language that was actually just developed to actually stop us being able to engage with them. So yeah. not just speaking and playing accessible language. And it's a real tool. It's a real, um, you don't know what you're talking about, so we're going to talk all this shy until yeah. you feel like you don't know what you're talking about. So I wanted to try and break through that. So when I went to Trinity, I went purely to study. Um, and my dad was really ill with dementia in the, in the time that I was in Trinity. And I obviously had two young daughters. So I used to go into study and it was quite lonely as a mature student because I used to go into study and I used to just run home to be able to do the things I needed to do as, as a mother and as a daughter of an older parent. So I didn't really get to engage. And I think that's a real um, issue for either mature students or working class students because sometimes the things you're learning in the classroom you can't bring home and discuss. Like now I used to bore the life out of my kids and my ma reading philosophy essays. <laughs> <laughs> so they were massively supportive. But in terms of being able to do the engagement, what's this about or what's that about wasn't there. But as the years went on, I was in about my third year and I ran for student parent officer and there had never been a student parent officer in Trinity. And I ran for that basically because there had never been a student parent officer. So I felt oh, I can mold this and shape this now. I'm not kind of following but when I was in that position, um, the, the current president at the time, Donald McLacken-Bourne, who was a doctor now, who was one of the most intelligent, articulate, socially aware people that I've ever, ever met had, and has had a massive impact on my life, just kept saying to me, you should be president. Everything He said, everything I've got in private school and everything I've got from my privileged background doesn't even match in the slightest to the experience that you have in working with communities and you know everything that you bring to the table. And it was him that, that pushed me forward to run for the presidency of the union. And at first I didn't believe him. And it was more because I just was like, who the fuck wants some L one <laughs> running the students' union, you know? And me and the kids moved into Trinity on Front Square, like, and it was an amazing experience because my youngest girl especially is absolutely mental. And the Chinese tourists used to be out on the, on the Front Square, right? And she used to open the window, right? And, like, they make so much money off tourists for the girls and all. And Jay Linda, she used to go, get out of me fucking garden! <laughs> Like, it was just an amazing experience, but why? <laughs> Swear to God, will you get me chewing them in the shop? Or Air Max, the, the runner's drying on the balcony. <laughs> I used to be like, I fucking love that. But uh, so the experience was amazing, but it actually was people that were from a different, completely different lived experience than me that kept going, you do that, you do that, you'd be great at that. And it was the same with the Senate. They, they said to me, just run, you have a profile now. It's very hard to get elected in the Senate if you don't have a profile. So it was all very instant. It wasn't, I, it wasn't something that I ever thought that I was going to be doing, you know? Yeah, um, a, a lot of the questions I got were wanting to know, did you ever have to deal with imposter syndrome? Yeah, totally, all the time. I still do. 
you know I still do um and probably one of the reasons why I wrote the books I was like just tell them everything tell them everything and then if they ever deny you you'll say sure I fucking wrote that 10 years ago what's wrong with you? <laughs> um yeah no totally um I've told a story before but I know in my first um in my first few months within the Shannad um obviously there was no government formed so it was ages before we actually got to sit because the confidence and supply agreement was being discussed and blah 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 and I remember um, on two different things that made me feel like, oh, what, what are you doing? Why are you here? You know, and um, I get extra tallow when I'm in places. So I'm like, I'm here. Where am I meant to be? What's the fucking story? And it's like, it's like all of a sudden I'm going, you're not going to reject me. I'm going to be every bar of me that I can. You know, I asked me mad to buy me a sovereign and all this Christmas. I'm like, I'm fucking, why did I pawn all my jewelry? Like, I'm here now. Like, do you know what I mean? Where's my clown? And... Um, but in the first few weeks in the Shannon, a few months, because we were waiting on the confidence and supply agreement, um, I had two things that happened to me. Um, I launched the Shannon reform uh, bill with 10 other senators to try and reform how people vote for the Shannon so that it's a much more democratic process. And as I was walking away, a senator said, oh, this is what happens when you let the plebs in. So that oh. was one comment. Um, and I obviously fought back against that initially. And the newspapers rang me and said, you want us to comment on that? And I was like, I actually prefer you wouldn't because I don't actually want to make, you know, I'd rather just be able to get on with my job. I don't want this to become the defined moment of me walking through the Shannon. Now he apologized later on and he said he was, you know, he was joking and, and I'm sure he was and I'm well able usually, but you know, when you're just in an environment that you're not used to, it was like, ugh. Um, the other thing was um, I had a dream, a reoccurring dream and in the dream, I had bought a suit in Grafton Street. Like, I think it was a Tommy Hilfiger, like, navy skirt suit. Mm -hmm. And it was very, like, Fianna Fáil-ish or something. Like, <laughs> yeah, fucking... Like, obviously, when my head was going, you need to look a certain way, dress a certain way. Like, this navy blue suit is obviously what you're supposed to be wearing. So in the dream, it happened for about three or four nights, I bought the suit. Right? And I hung it up in my office. And by the way, I fucking fought like fuck for one of the biggest offices in there. I was like, I'm here! <laughs> Squatters rights, you know, none of are getting in here. But I had this suit hanging in it, right? And in the dream, I put the suit on. And I kept walking into the Shannon Chamber. And my first contribution in the Shannon Chamber was actually on drugs with Simon Harris. And I was absolutely petrified. And in the dream, my suit, my navy, like proper Fianna Fáil-ish looking suit, kept turning into a pair of Mickey Mouse fleece pyjamas. Are you fucking serious? I swear to God. I swear to Oversized. Huge. Not even fitted on me. Huge Mickey Mouse fleece pyjamas. And it just kept... And every time I went in the chamber, I went, oh, what the fuck? And I rang back in and I put on the suit and every time I went back out again, I turned back into the big fleecy Mickey Mouse pyjamas. And in my head, I was like, what the hell is that all about? So on that Saturday, my ma said, will you go to the Vivo, which is the Casanta, where we used to play snooker in Kilnarden, which is now the Vivo, which is now the Mace. And um, my ma said, will you go over and buy me the TV magazine out of the sun? And I was like, I'm fucking walking over in my pyjamas. I have to, I have to face whatever this dream is. And I walked over and actually I'm going to, a friend of mine, I remember writing on Twitter saying, is it all right for me now to walk to the shop in my pyjamas? Now that I'm an elected senator. And a friend of mine said, totally. So I was like, grand. So I walked over in my pajamas to the Vivo, <laughs> bought me by the sun, 
I'm raging she doesn't smoke because I feel like there should be 20 blue as well in this story. <laughs> <laughs> but I went back home and then on the Monday, I, on the Tuesday, I just went into the chamber and I said, you know what? That whole dialogue that's happened in my head is me saying, they're all going to look at you when you start opening, you know, when you start talking. You're supposed to look a certain way, dress a certain way. Um, and a friend of mine, um, I wrote about him in the book, Chekhov, Feeney. Um, I went to him and I said, what am I going to wear my first day of to speak? And he, he came shopping with me, best shopper ever. And he was like, pick the most skimpiest dress. There was tattoos everywhere. And I just went in like completely raw, completely me, tattoos all over the place. Um, and I just had to face that. But I probably stemmed from being called a pleb or something in the first few days. Yeah. But yeah, I did face that imposter syndrome. And I still do, but not to the same extent. A, a friend of mine told me but years when ago... When it pops up now, knowing... Like, when it comes up now, you know what it is now. How do you deal with it in the moment when it pops up again? Being familiar with it. Um, I think... I look at my success and achievements and what I've achieved in the Senate now and I know that it's a million times more than most of them are achieving on a daily basis in there. And um, I, like, you know, a few two weeks ago there was a, a session in the Senate um, which wasn't a Shannon session, it was a committee on, um, like, it, your woman from the Grey Hack and all was in. Like, I mean, really high-level people talking about uh, the, the bias and algorithms and, and how uh, fake news is threatening democracy and you know it was, it was just really high level and I sat in the committee and I didn't speak for ages because it's illiteracy that I have to get used to because I don't have a computer science background and I'm listening and I'm listening and then I seen a Fianna Fáil politician you just can look back on the record yourselves and he, he stands up and proper high level like I mean talking about how elections are being like how trump gets in how brexit happens proper really really important stuff and he stood up and he waited for everyone to be finished and he said well uh facebook my daughter has facebook i don't have facebook but she raised one thousand euro <laughs> for our local charity on facebook therefore <laughs> Facebook is the voice of the voiceless. And I remember just sitting there going, 30 fucking years he's here. <laughs> the fuck? And I was like, how could I ever second guess myself? Yeah. How could I yeah. ever, ever second guess myself when this is the type of tripe <laughs> that's coming from people that are like, it's such an important conversation happening. And they just arrive and say whatever and, and the fuck comes into their head. Entitlement, whatever the fuck he says, he's entitled to think that it has value. Completely. And doesn't fucking question it. Ross Common, from Ross Common. Ross Common. <laughs> um, Lynn is fabulous. Are there any techniques or approaches she's developed to either manage, undercut, or draw attention to classist language or structures in the political sphere she moves in? Whoa, yes. <laughs> yes, I do. I, I pick up on classist language a lot, and I even pick up on it in legislation, and I think that's the importance of having diversity around the table discussing policy because people will pick on, up on what most affects them. So I do pick up on classes language. Um, 
I, I mean, it gets aimed at me enough um, in terms of how I speak, if I course. How does that, like, what, what's your experience in, in the channel of, of classism being dir directed against you? So, sometimes it's not directed directly at me. So sometimes it's just in the conversation. Yeah. Um, I suppose to look at it, it, sometimes it's like, well, Jesus, look at the name of my book. Yeah. So there it is, right? So my book is called People Like Me. Mm -hmm. And that comes from the phrase that gets aimed at me all the time. Okay. People like you don't even want an education. People like you want everything for free. People like you don't even pay taxes. People like you don't even know how to spell responsibility. And it was them targeted lines that came at me that I was like, people like me? And that's where the name came from. So it was actually a fellow politician that said to me, a Vincent Brown retirement party. And I've had that other stuff aimed at me. And I've told him that this, so I've not, this is not news to him. So um, a, a working class woman got up to give a big speech at, at, at Vincent's retirement party. Um, and she knew that was probably the last time that she was going to be on national television because Vincent always platformed people that needed to have their voices heard and that should have their voices heard. And she knew that with his retirement, that might change how that looks on, 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 uh, on late night telly. So she used that platform. But as she was speaking, I could see some fellow colleagues kind of huffing and puffing and, you know, pulling faces. And I went over and I said, listen, just leave it out. Vincent absolutely loves her. He he's always welcomed what she said. And she knows that this is probably the last time she will have all yous in the same room at the same time. So just stop with the kind of attitude. And he said to me, people like you have never had to make a decision in your lives. And people like you don't know how to spell responsibility. And I remember looking at him going, people like me would love the fucking head off you right now. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm not going to I'm going to walk away and I'm going to call my book <laughs> People Like Me and it's going to be a bestseller and fuck you <laughs> <laughs> Yort um, The last time I, w I was chatting to in, in, in Tala there last week you have an awful amount of affection for Vincent Brown Yeah what, what's so classic? Like, I love Vincent, but what do you love about Vincent Brown? Come here. Like, I like people that are who they are and say what they think. And, and that even means if they're saying something that I don't particularly like. And I like people that present themselves in the same light that they would present themselves in a private room. And that's exactly who Vincent is for me. And when I was launching the book, I only wanted Vincent to talk to me because I felt he understood... Um, the impacts of class and I you know and when we we met the other night for drinks it was quite funny and he said <laughs> I probably shouldn't be saying this I'm sorry to he doesn't ex. give a fuck I, I'm doing I I'm doing I guarantee you no it's not me it's like actually it's a Taylor Swift moment where I bring an ex-boyfriend in but he turned around and he said to me last year when I was oh, uh, yeah. launching the book <laughs> yeah. he said to me I have two issues. I'm not going to say one of them, but one of them was, you talk about your boyfriend, innit? You have a terrible track record. <laughs> Are you sure you want to put him in? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, because that's exactly true as I'm telling it now. And then the second we met the other night in Grogan's, he went, so you're still with your fella? <laughs> I was like, no. <laughs> and he was like, told you. <laughs> 
told you. And then we were eating the back off of Eamon Ryan, which I told you earlier. And we were giving out going, what are they saying? They're going to, they'll go into government. Blah, blah, blah. Well, Eamon arrived into the pub. And Eamon me? arrived in with two points. And I was like, listen, Eamon, I need to tell you, we were eating the back off. You sit down. And Vincent ripped into him. But it was good. It was... <laughs> But it was good. It wasn't in a negative way. It was in, you know, it's in very much. Listen, this is what I think. What do you think? Let's fucking trash this out, you know? And that's what I love he's about Vincent. He's so fucking, he's sorely missed, isn't he? We need a bit of, I'd love to get him doing a fucking podcast. <laughs> Vincent Brown needs a fucking podcast without any TV tree or RTE looking over him where he can talk. Jesus. Imagine that. Fucking hell. I'm going to convince him. Next time you're talking to him, Convince Vincent to fucking make a podcast. Jesus <laughs> Christ. Is he living in... He's, he's living in Limerick, is he? Or is he... No, well, he's writing a book at the minute. So he's very slow to engage. He's, he's, trying, he's writing a book on Charlie Hottie at the minute. So he's kind of really engaged with that. But he's not in Limerick, no. Okay. I'm not telling you where he is. Like, I'm not going... He's from Limerick. Is... He's from Limerick. <laughs> he's from Limerick. And he's given me the greatest Charlie Hottie stories I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> and I'm not even going to tell you. But... Uh, how many people here have been to Trinity College? You'd never vote for Lynn, would you? <laughs> um, we understand the importance. We understand the importance of empathy in helping people and their families recover. How can we increase empathy in the public for those who have addictions? Right. So, like empathy. I think sometimes people feel that empathy is the first protocol for people, but it's not. Like, empathy, what becomes before empathy is understanding and exposure to and, and, and an open mind, you know? And I don't think everybody necessarily needs to have empathy. I think people need to not feel the need to involve themselves in other people's lives, whether they have empathy or not. So if it doesn't affect you, just shut up and stay away from the subject like don't be forcing your opinion or your judgments or you know whatever on on people if it doesn't affect you stay out of conversation if you have empathy the biggest like i mean it's hard to explain empathy you know i think i think most people have empathy but it's hard to have empathy if the subject matter or the issue or the person feels so far beyond your reality yeah so it's about how do you actually connect people so that people have experiences of all walks of life. And I think when it comes to empathy with addiction, people have a lot of empathy with alcoholism because it does kind of, um, it filters into so many different people's lives. But You won't find an Irish family without, exactly. that touched by alcoholism. But with heroin and crack yeah. and, and say benzo use, it's, it's, it's about why people use drugs. People have empathy for addiction. What people don't have empathy for is the people or the reasons or the communities in which they're from in terms of why they use drugs. Mm -hmm. So there's a whole cohort of people that use drugs as a form of self-medication because of poverty, because of trauma, because of adverse childhood experiences. And they use drugs to completely numb every single thing they've ever experienced. And if that, is, if that materialises in the form of heroin use or crack use or, or benzo use, people don't want to know. But if it's a more socially accepted drug, people have more empathy to it. And I think that that just breaks down the class stuff as well. So it's about what types of drugs most affect 
particular communities. So what I kind of hate right now about our government, and I get on quite well with, with, with Simon Harris, but they, I challenged him, say, during the week on his use that, that addiction knows no geography and knows no demographic. And that's just not true because the type of addiction does, does discriminate and it does uh, primarily impact on, 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 on working class communities. You know, and I, I don't know how I'm not on drugs you know, from the things that I've experienced. I, do, I just don't know. And most days I wake up and I have to fight the want and need to numb out every experience that I've ever had. And I think when people understand that, people think that addiction is a choice, that it's some, someone chose between I'm going to be an addict or I'm not going to be an addict. And that's just, that's just not the case. It's never the case. I don't know a single heroin addict of all my friends that have been heroin addicts or all my friends that have died, that if you ever gave them the choice to be a heroin addict or not heroin addict, go, oh, going to say a heroin addict. Is that a choice? Yeah, no, a heroin. Nobody wants that. Nobody wants that. So we need to move away from this idea that people have free will, autonomy and agency when their environments are so unequal. You know, if their environments don't look the same, well, then we can't have the same agency autonomy as somebody that their environment looks safer. And you can't, you don't have, you can't be expected to have some level of social responsibility if your basic needs aren't met. So if your basic need of safety and security is not met, how can you even begin to be socially responsible for anything else when your basic level of suffering is so low? Yeah. Um, I'm going to move questions now to the floor and the balcony. <laughs> oh, Jesus, there you go now. Um, this gentleman at the back, did you have a question there or are you looking for a pint? <laughs> the man in the Fred Perry shirt. Oh, hold on, there's going to be a microphone over to you, sir. Now, do you know what happens sometimes when I ask for questions and one person enthusiastically gets up, they might possibly be mouldy. <laughs> Both. And I might refuse <laughs> to comment. <laughs> um, I've got two questions. Go on. Uh, for yourself. Um, when it comes to rock bottom... You're from Glasgow. <laughs> no. You're from Galway. Oh, no. oh, very good. Where are you from, brother? Very a different good. place in Scotland. Yeah, <laughs> uh, the west coast of Scotland. Okay. But um, when people say rock bottom, is there a place before you can ask someone what's going wrong? Like, it says you have to hit rock bottom before you get to this place. Is there a stage before you can help someone? Yeah. In addiction, like. Yeah, like, I, I think you can help someone at every stage of addiction. It doesn't ma necessarily mean that they will abstain from drugs. So it's about how you respond at each and every stage. And that's what love, compassion, and affection. And also recognizing that sometimes their behaviors actually fuck your life up. <laughs> yeah. So, like, it's, it's not ignoring that negative behaviors are attached to addiction. But I don't think we need to wait to rock bottom before we help. So it's this idea that we impose on people that help means abstinence when actually harm reduction at particular stages might be what's needed. Or just listen, when you're ready, I'm here. So there's mm -hmm. certain ways to help, but I think we need to get an idea in our heads of what we think that end product looks like. And it might not be 
uh, positive thing. So we might think that abstinence and them getting their life together is what rock bottom and then help looks like. But it might be, it's not linear. It's a very long process. So it's allowing people loop around and loop around and loop around. You can only ever be in denial once, you know, and once, once you've passed denial, you can help at any stage. <laughs> but it's oh, about what that right. help looks like. Yeah. And that's true as well, Lynn, not only with, uh, with addiction, but with, like, with mental health. And something you said there is very important. It's like acknowledging that people with addictions, it's not pleasant to be around. They can fuck your life up. <laughs> yeah, totally. But same with people yeah. with mental health yeah. issues. We have this thing with the mental health conversation where it's like, if your brother or sister is suffering from a mental illness or mental health, that we have to have this unending compassion. If you're around someone who has depression, they're pricks. <laughs> Let's be honest. I was a prick when I had depression. I was pushing people away from me because I couldn't fucking accept and love myself. And if anyone came to me with compassion, I didn't fucking accept me. So I was going, hold on a second, with your fucking compassion, get the fuck away. I'm going to have to be a dickhead today because the emotions you're bringing to me are too fucking real. And if you bring it to me, I'll fucking break down. Mm. So I'm going to be a shithead. And we all have to acknowledge that. And it's okay, even when someone around you has a mental health issue, to go, you're being a dickhead today. I understand you're going through some shit, but you're being a dickhead. And that can actually work. That's an act of empathy. You're still entitled to your fucking boundaries, even though someone else is in pain. Do you get me? And you can do that in a non-judgmental fashion. Any other questions? Right beside the woman in the white jumper. Sure, the microphone's over there already. <laughs> Handy out. I oh, know, sorry. He always wants the attention. Go on. <laughs> no, seriously, I absolutely understand what you're saying, right? And I just want to actually, in front of an audience, right? The microphone a little bit closer. Oh, no, I don't want Bring to. the microphone up a little bit. <laughs> Listen, there's no point in fucking talking with the mic and going, I'm going to half talk into the mic now. Ah, fuck off. Bring it up to your mouth. There you go. Oh, no, I, I totally get what you're saying, right? You're talking about mental health and everything, right? But it is, it's such a fucking, like, it's a really serious issue that we have here in Dublin. You're, you are amazing. Sorry, you're amazing as well. But you are amazing. <laughs> now, listening to you tonight is like, we have to have more women empowerment, in, especially in Ireland as well. Thank you. I actually want everyone to stand up, not only for you, because you are fucking deadly, but literally for you, can everyone stand up and give her fucking applause? Yeah, Seriously? give Lynn a round of it. Everyone. The only person on this podcast, aside from Bernadette Devlin, who can get me to shut the fuck up. Thank you. No, uh, seriously, you're unreal. <laughs> I love how much you coursed in that contribution. Thank you very much. <laughs> any, other, any other questions? Um, this woman here with the black uh, elbow. <laughs> there we go. I'm making things difficult for uh, Usher. We have actual Usher, the R&B singer, <laughs> who's handing the mic around. How are you? Hey, is uh, so. Just a question for Lynn: Is 
obviously being a working class woman and being in a kind of having a public platform, um, do you feel like the, the pressure, not only because you're in the public, but because of where you come from? I know you talked about imposter syndrome and the need to prove yourself, but do you ever just feel like you don't have all the answers? And what do you do when someone has a question? Like, probably right now you don't have an answer for this, but I mean, <laughs> oh, like, I have the answer. yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's sometimes you're expected because you're yeah. in, you're, you've progressed through the ranks so much and you've yeah. made something of yourself. And again, relative to other people and what yeah. they've made of themselves and what their success is. How do you react when someone expects something of you that you can't deliver or that you don't want necessarily to deliver? That's a very good question. I think um, I think it's it's not fair of me to think that I represent even everyone that say was in the same class as me. Can you at mind school. the mic there, Lynn? So like people haven't um, people have had different experiences of me and and or of life that have been quite close to me. So I don't have all the answers or I don't have all the experiences. I kind of represent a particular group. And, and that's okay because it's usually the, the most <laughs> marginalized. But what I try to do, and I think it ties into the people that I work with in the Senate. So when we were elected, um, historically, I should have been with this other independent senators that were elected through um, the university senators. But myself and Alice Mary Higgins, who was elected on the NUI panel, first met when we were elected. And we said, you know what, the both of us have a civil society background. And if we both have learned anything from working in terms of social justice or with people is that we don't have all the answers and we don't have all the knowledge. So why don't we work together and try and get other senators to work with us? And that's why we call ourselves the civil engagement group. And every single piece of legislation or amendment that we work on, we don't do it in isolation because there is people that know better than us. So if people ask me a question, I will try and answer it. I won't just answer it for the sake of it or else I will try and link them with people that know the answer to that question. And I'll very say, listen, that is not my area or I have an opinion on it, but that doesn't mean that it's accurate. Um, so within, within the Senate, what we've done is there's six of us there's myself, Alice Mary Higgins, Frances Black, who the singer and um, developed the Rise Foundation um, for families that have experienced addiction. Colette Keller, who, who was the, um, the, the CEO of Alzheimer's uh, Foundation and also uh, ran Simon in Cork and Cope in Cork. And then you have John Dolan, who's the head of the Disability Federation of Ireland. And um, we all we all came together because we recognised that we had a particular role in terms of connecting civil society in what we do. So we try and not develop them answers ourselves. So every, say my spent convictions legislation that's up tomorrow, that has been primarily written by people that have convictions and the Irish Penal Reform Trust. It's not coming from me. So I try and make sure that them vices are heard in the political structures that I then try and you know, implement in, in Parliament. I hope that answers it. Um, we've got a mic up on the balcony as well. Does anyone have a question up on the balcony? This is where I realise my eyesight is fucked. <laughs> up there in the... A gentleman in a red T-shirt and a gentleman in a black jacket with a lavender, a lavender T-shirt. <laughs> well, how's it going? Can you, can you hear me down? You can. How are uh, you? Well, how are things? Um, I just firstly like to acknowledge the role, Blind Boy, that you've played. I work in uh, hospital medicine and... Uh, I've worked in Tala and Blanche and in Beaumont and 
just the role you've played in this podcast in the vehicle has become as a front for young people to have thank you very much have a conversation about emotional intelligence and just what it's done like for me working in the cold face like there's a huge amount of people that present in crisis from drugs addiction and suicide deliver self-harm and all the rest and like just being able to have a conversation and using your podcast as a as a as a way for people to have something they can use to just to acknowledge that emotions exist and that there's a vehicle there for them to use to to express themselves so it's it's hugely beneficial like i found innumerable people have benefited from cbt and all the things you talk about so i just want to acknowledge that first and foremost but thank you very much Also, just for Lynn, like, you know, having worked in medicine for a few years now, it's, it's pain to hold, to be honest, having to deal with the things we deal with on a day-to-day basis and having no, like, end game in sight where things are just getting worse and worse and worse. Like, we're having to deal with people in crisis because there's a failure of community-based resources oh. that just don't exist. And we're having more and more people presenting at the end game when there's points in their trajectory that could have been you know, some, something could have been done along the way to, present, to stop them presenting in the way they're presenting. And I just feel like there is no, like there's the beds crisis, all that, that's always in the news. But what I feel is the, is the most important first point is to introduce things in the community, like across the board, not just in disadvantaged areas, but in so-called yeah. privileged areas as well. And I don't think that's been addressed enough that resources aren't being invested in places where it could make the biggest difference. So over the past few years, what you've said, and not only over the past few years, if you can map it back right to, to even um, when Fianna Fáil were in government, they started slowly removing, I suppose, community autonomy in terms of, especially in terms of health equity and decision-making and uh, local decision-making around education and health. So over the past 10 years, you've seen a move from taking a very decentralised approach to whether it be addiction and poverty and they've tried to pull it back central to stay and you can see that in some of the even um that were like what i talk about that has been usually kind of forced upon the community sector especially and you're right they shouldn't be getting to that point it should be within the community but the community have been completely devalued in terms of the role that they play and they do that by introducing structures that are trying to view people as outputs and uh, human Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Experience that as if they fit into some sort of metrics, you know, so if you don't have uh, a percentage of people from the community entering employment because they've engaged in some sort of educational experience, well, then that's a failure, you know. So it's like they're uh, applying private market measurements to community health and community addiction and people just can't like human complexities of life don't fit into that so massive funding is constantly being removed from the community sector to be able to do their job and I think especially when it comes to addiction the likes of myself keep advocating for a health-led approach and it's like the HSE are mishearing that 
I'm not saying HSE-led approach. I'm saying health-led approach. But yet they keep taking the skills. And, and like many years ago when we set up community projects in the community, in the most deprived communities, right? Community projects and addiction projects. They were local people, mostly local women. Um, priests were involved. Everybody built it from the ground up. And then during the Celtic Tiger, you're seeing this swoop in where they said, oh, you're not professional enough to run this local community project. You need a degree or a master's. So we're going to push all that local knowledge, all that local understanding that could actually be that first intervention. We're going to push you out because you aren't now good enough to run this show. And now what they're doing is, they're, anybody that was left from that, they're now kind of trying to move those services back to a privatised model or a central model. Like CDPs were privatised, community development projects privatised. You know, and addiction services are also being seen through that lens of some sort of market model where people are outcomes and it completely misses that human development. So say in Ancasan, where I trained as a kid at 16 as a young mother, they have to measure their success based on how many women leave that project in employment. When that's not an actual measurement of development within communities that don't have very little to stop them getting the crisis point. So the actual outcome of a program within a particular community project might be that that woman left a domestic violence situation. That might be her outcome, but that's not measured. So the government doesn't see that as a measurement. It's only if that woman was employed. So the problem is that we're ending up at that crisis point at your level is because actual community development and community work has been completely devalued and has com been completely centralised and has been ha and has had market market models imposed on it and has completely lost the human entity of what it is. Um, Lynn. Would you ever consider, like, uh, not, not like joining a political party, but like trying to g get into a position where you can make things better? No, but you're like, uh, no, uh, no, I mean, no, 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 that's wrong, that's wrong. Would you, like, how, how can you be like minister give for me, health? Give me an example of someone that's in a small left wing party that's making things more better than See, I that's am. That's the fucking problem. There that's you go. the thing. It's, 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 do you view it as a systematic <laughs> issue? Like, would you ever consider going into out of the Shannon and becoming, trying to become a minister or being a politician, not so necessarily join a let party. Let me throw out something unusual there, right? So the doll has a power, the government has a power to make a senator a minister. Okay. It's only ever been used twice before, right? My goal right now is, whatever about it being used twice before, is to now make it be used without me having a government whip. Okay. So the only reason I'll ever become a minister is if the government doesn't make me actually yeah. vote with them. Because <laughs> I'm yeah, not going to yeah, vote yeah, with yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? So it's, it's, you know, people that are in power become ministers. Yeah. So unless we have a massive left-wing movement, of which I will have to consider my independence if that happens. Yeah. I'm not saying that that's... I don't see a political party where I fit in right now. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm too much of... Like, I'm, I'm very <laughs> impulsive. Like, I yeah. wouldn't last very long. Like, they would throw me out. You know, they would totally <laughs> yeah, throw me yeah. out. Because I can't, I, I don't do what I'm told. I never do what I'm told. I can't just tow a party line because they need to rally in behind someone. I can't do that. Yeah. I can't. It would be a lie. And you know what? It would make me sick. Yeah. Yeah. Fair fucking play to you. Um, 
I'm going to take one last question because you have to get your Lewis or your Dart or whatever it is you do up here. Um, how do I pick the right wrist? <laughs> this one right here. Yes, there you go. Hi. Um, What's the crack? It's probably not as intellectual as all the other questions. Oh, stop. You're but, grand. Um, <laughs> so you said that about carrying the, the problem down generations. Yeah. Um, so coming from a family that both sides have addiction in, uh, how do I stop that carrying forward and how do I know that I'm doing the right thing? Yeah, it's a huge question. And yeah. I think it, it would, uh, it's such a big question. And for me, it was less about addiction and more about trauma. So more about how the family reacts to a particular situation. So usually it's the environment that's created because of a particular thing that has the, the biggest impact, you know. And addiction for me doesn't necessarily carry, carry down at all. Like, I mean, if behaviors within a family are a particular way um, and things become normalized, that can have an impact, environment can have an impact. Um, but I don't think it would be very fair of me to apply some sort of generalized situation to your situation. My parents, does, I have no addiction in my family, but I can tell you, I, like, I struggle every day not to just knock myself out into oblivion. So it's not necessarily that it's handed down. For me, within my family, it was how I responded to trauma. So it was actually my behavior. So whether it was addiction or whether it was the fact that I was sexually assaulted, whether it was the fact that I experienced just so much you know, pain in my community, it was actually the fact that I carried myself in such a venomous way, actually growing up. I was, I was you know, you, you knew when I walked into a room and your children or your family shouldn't have to reassert themselves based on what mood you're walking into a room. And that's what I brought in. So it wasn't necessarily my addiction or it wasn't necessarily anything else other than the fact that I was carrying a massive amount of pain and I just vomited that on everyone else. And that is what had the impact for me. So I don't think necessarily addiction has to have some sort of lineage at all. Um, look, all I can say, Lynn, is it was a, a, a fucking serious, serious privilege to have you on here and to have you speaking. I love listening to every fucking word you said. The sense that you're talking, the learning that I did tonight, I truly gobsmacked. And it, it was a fucking privilege, wasn't it? And... Honest to God, lads, if you did go to Trinity College and you hear about... I'm serious. If you hear about Lynn looking for re-election and you went to Trinity College and you've got a friend who did, for the love of fuck, she's a good person who's doing something from her fucking heart and that's rare in this country. So please uh, do the right thing there. Thank you so much to all of you. I love coming here to Vicar Street. You were absolutely fucking sound. You, fantastic audience. Perfect night. Thank, that sounded like Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no seriously thanks so much lads it was fantastic best of luck